chapter 2, verse 42. They, the early Christians, as in within a couple of weeks and months of Pentecost, were devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverentially awe came over them, everyone, and many wonders and miracles and signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Here's the picture we have. First, the apostles who were trained by Jesus himself and were led by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit were the teachers and the leaders of the community. The primary task that we see the apostles is teaching and preaching. They're going out and they're preaching in the temple courts, they're preaching to the Jews, and they're teaching the new, the new disciples, the new Christians. And so this is the first thing. All these Christians, probably realizing that they know so little about how Jesus connects to the First Testament, are at the feet of the apostles and listening to their teaching because the apostles have four more years on them and understanding Jesus' teachings than everybody else here, here does. This is the first thing that we learn. They have devoted themselves to teaching good, solid doctrine from those men who actually saw, walked, lived, and heard Jesus, and more importantly, were called and commissioned by Christ. And so doctrine was extremely important. And we're going to see this even when you get into other books of the Bible, that doctrine is extremely important. Second, they were committed to being in community and fellowship with each other. They needed each other. They were in a world where they were completely alone. Some of us know what it's like to feel that way, depending on where you work and how you feel and, all the, and what you deal with and with the schools that you're in or the work that you're in or the factory you're in or whatever, the neighborhood that you're in. They're completely alone, so to speak, in the greater sense of the world. Judaism is kind of antagonistic towards them a little bit. Rome is antagonistic to them. They've got these new ideas. And they were gathered together in community. Community is extremely important to God. It's one of the things he values more than anything. Relationship, unity, community, love. All those go together. And so they were committed to gathering together, supporting each other, praying with each other, all these things. Hebrews 13 tells us that we shall not give up gathering together as believers. We need that. I know that there's some people that have been hurt by the church and it's becoming more and more popular in America to say, I don't need the church. I've got the Bible. I've got the Holy Spirit. I can do the church on my own. And, and, and I'm just going to stay out of that mess. But the reality is you need community. God designed you and created you to need community. And only in community can you grow and become more of the image of God. Can you be supportive? Can you be encouraged? And yes, the church is jacked up, but so are you. Okay, And it's easier to think that you're not jacked up when you're alone at home. We all know that, right? I always thought I was a pretty nice guy until I got married. 
And then I realized I couldn't. It's like, yeah, I'm a nice guy, right? I do this and this and this. And then people will start annoying you, and I'm like, I'm going home. And you go home. And all that annoying and anger goes away, and you're like, yeah, it was them. And then you get married, and you realize, I'm going home. Oh, you're there still, right? <laughs> and you realize you can't get away. And then you realize, oh, it's me, not them, right? It's just me interacting with people and the selfishness coming out. And then you have kids, and you're like, holy crap, I really am selfish. <laughs> that's, that's what this is. Like, yes, it feels like, oh, life is really good without the church. They're a bunch of selfish people. Yeah, but you're not there, and it would be a little bit more selfish if you showed up. And it's easy to say you're not selfish because you're alone not dealing with people. Life is messy. And here's the other thing. You must love the church because Christ loved it so much he died for it. And so the very thing that he died for and is pouring himself into is the thing you're saying, forget that. I don't need that. And so they're gathering together in community because they need it. Third, they celebrated communion together, which is the fellowship they had with each other through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is connecting them? Communion. Communion is communing. Community. Now, I know that might be a foreign word. I'm going to step on some toes here, but I don't really care right now. I love the church. But one of the things that I don't like is the way that we have traditionally done communion in most churches. Community is community. And yet most churches say, here's the bread and here's the wine. Just kind of isolate yourself in your little pew and think about your own life and your own relationship with God and, and, and repent of your sins and that kind of stuff. Drink and eat and now look back up and let's sing a song. And I'm not saying that's wrong to do that at any time. But that's not what community is. Communion is communion. And when Christ did the first communion, well, actually, when the first communion happened, it was a family coming together, sacrificing a lamb, knowing that only in the community of believers could they hold each other and comfort each other as the screams of people dying around them were happening, knowing that tomorrow was the day that they needed each other to escape Egypt and follow the Shekinah glory of God, which they hadn't seen yet, out of Egypt into a new land. And then from that point on, it was the community coming together as a family and breaking bread together and eating together and fellowshipping together and celebrating together. God saved us, all of us. It's no longer a horrific night anymore. It's a night of celebration that we all have something in common. And they would tell stories about Abraham, stories about the Exodus and all that kind of stuff. And then when Christ comes along, he brings them together and they talk and they laugh and they do all these things and he teaches and they break bread together in fellowship. And then he says, this, do this in remembrance of me, which should make us happy, not depressed. Okay, yes, it would have been depressing for them on the first night that Jesus died, but after that it's hallelujah, he's risen. And so it's not a time of somberness. It's not a time of isolation. It's a time of communing. Okay, that's why the word is communing. And so it's a time where we should be getting together and breaking bread together. And I'm not saying every single time you do it, it has to be this big community thing. I'm not saying there's not different ways you can do it at different times. But can we at least just mix it up a little bit? And so the idea is that we come together and we do this in remembrance of him. And Paul makes it very clear that if you have any sins or anything that you need to repent of, you do that at the door before you even come. Like technically... By the time you're breaking the bread and drinking the wine, it's a little too late. Now, it's never too late, but it's too late in the order of things to now do your repentance. This is supposed to be a celebration and remembrance of what Christ has done by bringing us together. And what did Christ pray right before he went to the cross? 
I pray that they would be one with us as they are, and one with us and one with each other as we, the Trinity, are one with each other. That's communion. There's unity in community. And so they're gathering around a common thing, and this is important. So the first thing is they're, they're dedicated to the teachings of the apostles, come through Christ. They're gathering together community, but they're not gathering community around football or common art interests or a movie night. And I'm not saying Christians can ever do that, but this is they're gathering around the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes, we have different friend groups, and there's different things that make connect us. But the thing that connects them first and foremost is the common Savior that's living in them. It's not your political party. It's not your scientific beliefs. It's not your interest in art or sports or whatever. It's what binds us first and foremost is that we share the same God, the same cross, the same resurrection, the same Holy Spirit. And I'm, they have a lot of issues. They're going to have a lot of issues. But what keeps bringing them back together is that. Is that. And unfortunately, there are too many people who are allowing the government right now in America to divide us. Rather than saying, forget you, government. I'm not saying we should be anarchists. But we're going to stay unified as the church, regardless of our views on politics, masks, vaccines, science, whatever it is. Because those are the big ones right now of why we don't like each other. Okay? And we need to get through those. Those are so secondary. And that's what they're gathering around. That is what makes the church perk up and take notice. That there's something different. Fourth, they prayed with each other on a regular basis. And not just like right before mealtime. Prayed with each other. They, they're struggling. They have things that are causing them to come to their knees. And this is another thing, okay... I love that we have praise songs, and I love that we have a message. I mean, my goodness, I'm a teacher, okay? So, and my wife is a worship leader, okay? So it's a little high hiatus now, but um, I love that we do that, but there are other elements. We don't pray very often together as a body of Christ in our Sunday morning services. We don't hear the testimonies of people and what God is doing in their life very often. This is what fellowship, they're talking about their lives. They're praying together. There are more than two elements to a Sunday morning. And we should have a lot more breadth and variety. There should be us gathering together in community and sharing our lives and struggles. And yes, some struggles are better in intimate gatherings, and some, but some can be shared in the community. We can stand in front of the church and so say, this is what God is doing with me right now at my job or my family member struggling with cancer or, or this, my kids are like crazy, insane, and going off the walls. Like, but God is getting me through it. Like, we can hear that kind of stuff, and we can, we can um, pray together. And these are the things that they're doing. This is what the church is looking like. Like I said, and this is not the perfect picture of how it's to be done, but Luke is making it very clear that this is good things. These are good elements. You know when it's not good and when it is good when Luke talks about it. So not saying they're doing all this perfectly all the time and they're consistently doing it over and over and over again and this is all they're doing, kumbaya, Jesus loves us, we're all so great and loving. No, but these were elements that were there. And these elements helped them get through all those other things. Fifth, the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit began to perform miracles for those in the city just as Jesus had, thus helping people in need and validating their claims. So they were involved in each other's lives. They were there when they needed each other. 
They weren't just praying and fellowshipping together, but they literally rolled up their sleeves and dove into the filth and the messiness of life in each other's lives. And they were there for each other, and they were there for, pe- there for people outside the church. And when they went out and did that, God did miracles. God did miracles. I know some people might ask, like, well, why don't we see miracles like we're not seeing people being raised from the dead on a consistent basis and people laying on hands and just being healed automatically? And that is happening if you have the eyes and the ears to see. But it also is not happening in the way that we read it here. Well, one, God doesn't always operate like that throughout every period of history. I mean, if you think about it, Abraham didn't see that many miracles in his life. Isaac didn't. I mean, yeah, there were some big ones. But it wasn't happening every single day for him. It wasn't even happening every single year for him. Remember like 15 years had gone by and he still didn't have a kid. He's like, God, I know you promise and I believe and you're going to credit to me righteousness. But uh, I need something more because I've just been kind of an old man still with my wife in the middle of nowhere and there's still no kid. That's 15 years. Okay, They went 400 years in Egypt and they didn't see any miracles. So much so that the vast majority of them walked away. And yet God came in the Exodus. It was like bam, 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 bam all over the place in a Hollywood kind of way. But then after that, they went through all the 300-year period of Judges. After just a couple of generations, Gideon's like, well, I've heard of this Yahweh and all the things he's done, but I've never seen it. And life isn't that great for us. So you have to realize that God does not always do this Hollywood-like miracles. And every single period of history, constantly, all the time. What he does is he does big miracles like that to validate his teachings, to validate his word. When he's doing something new and different, like bringing the Messiah to preach the word of God and claiming to be Jesus, when he's bringing the Holy Spirit, when he's starting the church, when he does that. I've also known of people in other countries where they hear the word of God for the first time and all of a sudden these big Hollywood-like miracles. You know, I, I say that because we think of movie spectacular miracles. Okay, God starts doing amazing things to validate the word. But we know for a fact that miracles don't really truly bring people to Christ. Because they saw in the wilderness after the Exodus the greatest miracles that are ever recorded in the Bible consistently over and over again. And the vast majority of them shook their fist at God and said, forget you, and their bodies died and hit the floor in the wilderness. Jesus' time period. They saw more than any other time period other than the Exodus, and vast majority of them still rejected him and walked away. Even his own disciples walked away. And if it hadn't been for the Holy Spirit and the resurrection, who knows what they would have gone off and done. What changes people is the specific harder to misinterpret word of God. Miracles are subjective sometimes. They can be vague of what they're pointing towards. They don't bring specific theological teaching and words and understanding. Yes, a miracle demonstrates the power and love of God, but that's about it. It's not, it's the word of God that takes you deeper and helps you understand God's character, helps you understand his mind, helps you understand his heart. Not that he can and wants to, but what it actually looks like and how it works and that kind of stuff. Ultimately, it's the Word of God. And now with the Holy Spirit, that's that's what is driving it. And then if you're committed to that, God is doing miracles. There are lots of miracles that have happened. I've seen many miracles in my life. 
And no, you might be like, oh, but that wasn't spectacular. It was spectacular to me. It was spectacular to other people because God does what he knows that we need at that moment. And he's not interested in entertaining and wowing. He is interested in drawing us closer. These miracles are happening because that's what they need at that time period to draw them closer. And we will see different things at different times or the same things in order to draw us closer. And oh, by the way, he does still heal with the laying of hands and he does still do all those things. But we have the word of God. And whether you're a believer or not, everybody's house has got a Bible in America in this day and age. And everybody's about one click away from the Bible on the Internet. That is primary before miracles. Because guess what? Even with a miracle, you still get to get sick and die. But only the word of God and only the Holy Spirit will resurrect you. Finally, completely, for all eternity. And so they were doing miracles to validate what this word was that they were preaching. Six, they began selling their property and possessions and giving the money to those in need. They were willing to sacrifice their material wealth and comfort for the sake of other people. This isn't communism. A lot of people like to look at this and say, this is communism. And there's a lot of people throughout human history who said, this is communism. We need to get back to that. Okay? This isn't kibbutz. Okay, if you know anything about kibbutzes in Israel... This is where they basically sell everything and they work on the land. And it became really huge in the 70s and 80s and going into the 90s. I actually, when I visited Israel two different times, we stayed in a kibbutz. And we talked to a lot of Jewish people there. Okay, the most recent time that I got back to Israel, there are far fewer kibbutzes in Israel now than there were back then. And when you talk to them, they'll tell you, well, to be honest, as much as I was 100% for it, kibbutzes are not as easy as what you think. Everybody getting together and just giving up everything and selling it to the community and having nothing at all except what the community distributes to you when you need it and working in the way that the community tells you that you're supposed to work every single day of your life and raising your kids the way the community tells you to raise your kids, that wasn't that easy. And it was really hard. And there was a lot of problems. Yeah, welcome to the early church. Welcome to us. Okay, this is not what's happening here. We need to pay very close attention to the words. The text does not say that every single person sold everything that they had and gave it to the community and the community controlled everything. It does not say that. It says that there were people, only some, who sold things in order to give it to people when they saw a need that's like the complete opposite on every fact so it doesn't say everyone it says there were some people who were selling things it did not say they sold everything and it says they sold it when they saw a need of somebody else in the church and that is way more important okay you join a communistic community and I'm saying putting all the politics aside, okay? Just pure, just people who love each other, who want to sell everything, own everything together, and take care of each other, okay? Get rid of all the politics. We're not going there tonight. That's a whole other conversation. You do that, and that's still a mandatory thing of the community, controlled by the community, 
and there's going to be a lot of disagreements of how to handle all that. And even if you take care of people, how much to give them? How many times to give to them? How many are they taking advantage of it? Are they not taking, I mean, we, we go on and on of all the things that would cause problems, right? And there's nothing wrong with those questions. Remember, you will always have conflict. Even without sin, if we lived in a perfect world, there's going to be conflict between people. Even if I was completely perfect and my wife was completely perfect and I want to go to Taco Bell and she wants to go to Olive Garden, welcome to conflict, right? Because now you have two different opinions of where you want to go and you can't go both ways and still have community. So you have to reconcile. Now, if we were perfect, we would resolve the conflict perfectly. But there would still be conflict. You still have to figure it out. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I think they're taking advantage of us and we've been giving them too many times. Well, I don't think so. Maybe one more time. And both could be legitimately correct. Only the Holy Spirit can really help you figure that out. And there's going to be conflict. What you're having is you sold it by a mandatory mandate and a community is now determining where all that goes and how to help people and you're not always in agreement. The picture that Luke is painting is I saw a need and the Spirit moved in me and filled with me with compassion. And I willingly gave up in that moment at that time for a very specific need. Not I gave up my money for some future needs that are going to happen one day that I don't know about. And I don't even know how it's going to be handled that way. But I did it for that person in that way. And most likely, I did it face to face, shoulder to shoulder with them. That is relational. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do that sometimes where I just tithe the church out of love and I don't know exactly how the church is going to, is it they going to use that check to pay the bills one day or are they going to use it to, for the homeless shelter that day or the food kitchen that day or the, the ministry to the children that we're going to have this weekend. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's still a sense that I still have enough money after I've tithed that when the spirit moves and I see you face to face and I see you in need, I can give to you. Because if you go into communism, you're stripped of that. Because the minute you sell everything and give everything away, then you see somebody broken and you see their need and your heart goes out to them and you're like, sorry, I have nothing. You can go down there. And there are times that I have to say, I can help you get to the soup kitchen. I can help you get to the homeless shelter. But I don't want to do that every single time. There are times that I want to like roll up my sleeves and get involved in your life and face-to-face -face in a relationship help you personally, right? And communism strips you of that. It strips you of that. And now all you become is, down there they can help you, down there they can help you, down there they can help you, down there. And maybe you're the guy in charge of that help there down there. Or maybe you're the guy who's in the fields on a daily basis and you never get to see that. It says that they sold what they had, what they wanted at that moment when they saw a need. The other thing is, most likely, these are the wealthy people in the church selling in the needs to help the people who are poor. And the wealthy are always the minority, especially in a day and age where there is no middle cap class yet. And so we're only talking about a small percentage of people who really truly have the capability of doing that. Because the poor people don't have much. They're barely surviving. And that's the vast majority of the people in the church. But here's the important thing. The important thing is that they valued people more than possessions. 
It's not about communism. It's not about how to structure a community. It's not about how to handle money. It's not about any of that stuff. What it is, is that the people who had a lot, the Spirit worked in their life, that people still meant more to them than possessions. And that is the true mark. It's not that you should feel guilty having stuff. It's that when somebody is in need, do you look at what you have and say, oh, I really like that and that's comfortable. Or do you say, you know what? Even if I give this up, I still have more than them. And they need. They have some need. And I can sacrifice this and I can give this up because God has been so good to me. My house is your house. My car is your car. My money is your money. And I'm not going to sell everything for you because I need to do this with wisdom. And I also need to have something for other people. I know there was that really popular book, um, Radical Christian, I forget what it was, where he basically kind of wanted you to sell everything and live in a cardboard box. And it's like, well, once I sell everything and live in a cardboard box, should I feel guilty that I'm living in a cardboard box? Should I sell that too? And then if I sell everything, then what do I have to offer people? Radical Christianity or something like that. And his idea was good because as Americans, we've kind of gone too far one way. But the answer is not pendulum swinging the other complete opposite direction either. Wisdom, tension, balance. But we don't like tension. That's uncomfortable. So this is the idea. This is not ascetic lifestyle. It was valuing people more than anything. Yes. I think having everything in common was the, the word of God that they're gathered around. That These six things. That gathering together was important. Serving other people was important. People are more important than personal possessions. Breaking bread is important. All those things. Because that's what, the, that's what the Bible always comes down to. That we have Christ in common. That we have gathering together in common. That's what unites us. The main point here is that it is because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the early Christians were connected community where when someone saw a need, they responded in men. The main point here is that they were unified through the Spirit. They had a common goal, a common agenda, and a common desire to do this the right way. Now, how do you do that? Well, they were not always in agreement on that. And we're going to see that in chapter 7, where they're going to be like, this is not fair. Because these Christians are saying we should do it this way. And these Christians are saying no. And these Christians are getting left out. And that's only about a month later. So they're not always agreeing how to do it. But what they're agreeing is that it needs to be done. That it needs to be done. Which is like us. I mean, right? Everybody in the church would say, we need, Christ is important. We need to be doing this. We need to be serving the children. We need to be homeless. But like, how much of our resources go into that versus that? How do we do it? What is the plan? That's where... Ben Witherington says this. This is the story Luke knows to tell. He tells it with consummate narrative, art, and skill. The fact that he chronicles only part of the story of the development of the early Christianity should not prevent us from appreciating his accomplishments. As a historian who may not even have made it to Israel before AD 57, he was limited by the sources of information he had about what transpired in Israel. It should also not be said that he simply glosses over the problems of the early church that he knows about. The narrative chronicling the need of a new 12th apostle, the narrative about Ananias and Sephora, 
the narrative about Simon Magus, the narratives about Cornelius and the Acts Council, the narratives about a Christian preacher who knew only of John's baptism, and more all show that he is well enough aware that all was not a bed of roses or neat and tidy during the courses of their history of the earliest period. He felt it necessary to tell Theophilus about some of these struggles and difficulties. Luke does not gild the lily or simply an idealistic picture of the halconic days of yore. His positive summary statements must not be taken in isolation from the narratives they connect. These things must be kept in mind as we proceed through Acts. The point that he's making is that Luke is not interested in giving a detailed historical account exactly of how the church was working. He is interested in showing you how the church is growing. Not going in great detail of what it means that they had everything in common and what their daily church services look like. But he's also not interested in going in detail of every little problem that they had. This is not a biography of the church. This is how the church grew. That's the main agenda. And we need to remember that. Yes, we're like, we would like to know a lot more, historically speaking. Well, that was not Luke's agenda. Luke's agenda was, how did the Spirit grow the church and the Great Commission? And so he gives us some insights of what they had in common, and he will give us a few struggles because those two sides are important to help us understand that the church grew. But how much was it? 40%, 60%, 70%, 30%? How often did this really happen this way and that way? Don't know. That's not his agenda. Acts chapter 2, 42. The cross and Pentecost are the two most significant events in all of Christian history of what the God is doing and, and reestablishing himself in our lives and probably the third greatest event is going to be the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth we now enter into that in between we are in really new ground here for those who've like been with me for a long time from Genesis and we've gone through every narrative book of, we've gone through the entire first testament many of you have been here from the very beginning some of you have listened on audio and for pretty much everything that I've been teaching for the last several years, it's been like, and this leads to Christ, and this leads to Christ, and this leads to the cross, and this leads to Pentecost, and that kind of stuff. And it's all about what God has been doing to get us to that point. And when we did chapter 2 last week, that's pretty much like we arrived. Everything has led there. We now have the cross, which we did Luke last year, and we now have the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit. And now we are in, they, right now in the book of Acts, we're in the same place as they are. We're in, the be, in between the first and second coming Christ. And now what they have is what we have. We have more experience and the church has gotten bigger and more broad. But they are now in the same place that we are. We have Christ. We have the word of God. We have a few more epistles than them. But we have the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. And... This is the church, and this is the beginning of the church. And that's what we're going to begin to see, the growth. But we also need to see the church in the right perspective. There's a very real danger as we go through this to see the church as some perfect entity that somehow had it all together. And it's like, well, if we could only get back to the the New Testament church and the early church, everything would be great. 
And there's a certain sense that when we read this paragraph, yeah, like we need to be emulating that. We need to be modeling that. That's what God intended for us. But you also have to remember just in a couple of chapters, there's going to be a lot of problems too in the early church. They're going to immediately have like a prejudice going on between Jews or Hellenized and Jews that are like part of Jerusalem and there's going to be conflict here and conflict there and and they're going to have Judaizers coming in. And you have to remember that the first New Testament book that we have is Corinthians. That's the first book. Most scholars believe that Corinthians was the first letter, the first book written, and Matthew or Mark came after that, and then Matthew, Luke, and then John, and then all the other books. And we're talking about around 55 AD is when Corinthians was written. And that church is jacked up. I did my thesis on it in seminary. I had a professor. I was like, I don't know what to do for my thesis. He's like, well, I'm writing a paper, a commentary in Corinthians. Would you like to do back research on Corinthians for me as your thesis? I was like, sure. I was like, well, what do you need? And he's like, well, there's a lot of Paul refuting the sexual practices of the Corinthians there. I would like you to do a research paper on the sexual practices of the Roman Empire and how it's seeping into the church. And I was like, oh, Okay, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's not what I expected. And when I went into original sources and was reading, like, I did a lot. I mean, you had to read, like, a stack of books like this for your theses and stuff. It was like, holy crap, this church is messed up. And if you kind of want a little bit of an idea, read this book called Paul Among His People. It's a short book. It's written by a feminist um, kind of atheist who hated Paul as a male chauvinist pig. And she did her doctrine on the Roman Empire and fell in love with Paul and then became a Christian and wrote this book about like, okay, that's why Paul was saying all those things. Um, it was a jacked up period. And that was the, that was the early church. That's within 20 years of Jesus sending into heaven. We're going to have to maintain this balance that they're still human. Yes, they have the Holy Spirit and amazing things are going to begin to happen because they should. It's the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, they're jacked up still in some ways because they're sinners. And this is all new to them. Just like even as bad as the church has gotten overall in America in some ways, because we're sinners and humans, there's still some amazing things. A lot of amazing things are happening in the church in America. And God is doing amazing things. It's not this or that. It's spiritual warfare. And and we're going to have a little bit of everything. And we need to see that in the proper perspective. The other thing you need to realize is just because they were getting this right in chapter 2, verse 42 doesn't mean they had it all figured out. Get to remember, all they've ever known is Judaism their entire life. And all of a sudden, Peter gives us this great message on Peter, but if that's all you had for Christianity, that's an amazing speech, but that is not what we would call Discipleship 101 in most churches, right? Just that speech. We would want more meat. And these people have enough that the Holy Spirit's going to come into them and they're going to be saved and they're going to, be, they're, they're going to experience Christ and all that kind of stuff. But what are they doing within a couple of days? They're going back out into the Roman Empire and they're going off into Persia and they're going off into modern-day Turkey and they're going off into uh, Ethiopia and they're, some are going over to Rome and, and they're scattering around. And there are no 12 disciples, 12 apostles going with them. They have them and maybe a couple family members who just happened to be there have gotten bored with them. Probably a lot of other family members said, this is dumb. 
and they're all drunk or whatever, and they're going back to the Roman Empire, the Roman capital. They're going back to Ethiopia and Memphis and Alexandria and Antioch and Poseidon and all this kind of stuff. And all they have is the Spirit in them. And all they have is the First Testament and a, a memory of a short speech that Peter gave them connecting dots. And they're going to be the leader in whatever church that they begin to start. They've got a lot of things to figure out. And even though they have the Holy Spirit, all things are possible through the Holy Spirit. And we know that. But we also know what it's like to parent or lead a ministry or build something with the Holy Spirit and also us. It's not the easiest thing. And we get, we get anxious and we get stressed and, and, and figuring out God's wisdom is difficult. And, and when there's more people together praying with a lot of understanding of the epistles, it makes it a whole lot easier and they don't have that. But yet, despite that, the Holy Spirit is going to do something amazing. And these churches are going to become the bedrock for the, the church growing across the empire so that we are who we are today because of what the Holy Spirit did then. This is like anything in life. It's complicated. So we can't let the early church up as this ideal. We need to get back to that because there's a lot of things that, no, we need to get away from that. Um, but at the same time, we can't turn into this like, well, they bash them and they had all these problems and we focus on the problems only. Um, and then we have to realize that there were some things that they were amazingly figuring out through the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit uses what he has and he understands where they're coming from and what they got. And so he's going to do things there. But at the same time, they're still trying to figure a lot of things out. And I can't imagine what it would be to be the first person who came to Christ, go back to the Rome, the capital, you and like three other people maybe got Christ and you got to like start going in the synagogues and dealing with those Jews and how they felt about things. Some of them began to convert and it's like, oh, so I'm the leader of the church now just because I just happened to hear Peter's like 10 minute speech and I just happened to be the first one. Oh dear God, help me. Not my will be done, but yours. Like imagine that position. And so this is the beginning of the church. And there's all these complicated scenarios that are going on with them. And imagine you with the spirit and maybe one other person saying, we're going to downtown Columbus and starting a church. And this is all we have. And we have no other support churches that are going to help us. And we have a 10 minute speech and we don't have the books of the New Testament. All of us would be very anxious and very stressed. We would make a lot of mistakes. We would grow in a lot of ways. But we would also be on our knees probably a lot in prayer and absolute dependency. And so in some ways, that's probably one of the things that why the church is going to thrive so much. Because when you have so little, you get on your knees more often. With the comfort and the abundance and the entertainment of America, we probably don't spend as much time on our knees as we would be if we were truly desperately driven there. And so that's probably the one thing. Um, I've had a lot of friends over the years come from other countries. Uh, one of the greatest benefits of being at seminary was actually, to be honest, was less of the classes. And the classes weren't bad, um, but was more of just meeting Christians from all over the world. And, and people who have been pastors for years and came to America to get more, and people were just starting out and that kind of stuff. There is something to affluence and comfort that makes the church a little different than people who have nothing. And, and as much as I desperately would love to be stripped of everything, 
to experience that. I'm also a father of three girls, and I desperately don't ever that want that to happen in my own lifetime because I'm selfish, and I like the comfort. And there's this torn spirit in me of, yes, take everything away, God, because I could be more as a Christian. But no, God, I had three daughters. Please don't do that. I like my life. And this is what they have, and we don't. And we're on different sides. And with every gain, there's a loss. And we have struggles that they don't have, and they have struggles we don't have. And so we need to put them in their proper perspective. This isn't idealism, but there are great things that they're doing good that we're not. And there are things that we're able to accomplish that they are not having because we have more experience. And so it just is. It just is. Tannehill says this, The plot of the work can often be illuminated by considering the major conflict or conflicts within it. Although Jesus' witnesses face other conflicts, the central conflict of the plot, repeatedly emphasized and still present in the last major scene of Acts, is a conflict within Judaism provoked by Jewish Christian preachers, including Paul, and traces the development of this conflict in Jerusalem. What Luke is more interested in is how was Judaism and the outside forces hindering the church, and how did the church overcome that to spread the gospel? and i.e. the Roman Empire, although Judaism was more of a hindrance.